Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of EMIG Cast. My name's Sam, and I'll be your host today. We're sitting down with Dr. Shana Cusin, the toxicology department at OHSU. This episode went a little bit long, so we split it into two parts. This is the first part. We're going to talk a little bit of the story of methemoglobinia. Stick around for part two, where we'll talk more about the path to toxicology and whether or not you should think about doing the fellowship. Dr. Cusin, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Do you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself? So my name's Shana Cusin. Um, I work at OHSU, Oregon Health and Science University. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Medical Toxicology, also known as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of medicine. So as a practicing toxicologist, are there one to five things you wish every layperson knew or would be made aware of? So as a toxicologist, things that I wish the average layperson knew, first and foremost, maybe this seems obvious, but call the poison center. Um, The poison center is always open. It's free. And basically everybody who is there, their whole purpose of employment is to answer questions and hopefully to make you feel better about whatever silly thing just happened in your house. So, um, you know, the number of crazy posts I've seen on Facebook mom groups where I've, you know, intervened and said, just call the poison center. Um, that's a big one. The other thing that, you know, maybe is a little bit snarkier, um, just in today's sort of climate, people are always talking about toxins and going on a detox and, you know, eliminating toxins from a juice cleansed. And I always just want to ask them, name three toxins you're concerned about from eating this product or eliminating from your body that you don't think are eliminating on their own. Like the word toxins is so overused and obviously poisoning is no joke, but it kind of gets watered down with some of this other silliness. Have you ever had any nightmares of Mr. Yuck? I mean, you've seen our Mr. Yuck paper mache costume hanging upside down from his ankles in the hallway of the poison center how could that thing not haunt your nightmares when you're a fellow on call like 14 days a month i'll be honest when i first saw that thing i had no idea what it was i just see this big green orb hanging in the middle of the hallway and i had to look at it upside down before i finally got like oh okay and the pictures on the wall help yeah sometimes i look at that and i just think of the stay puff marshmallow man and ghostbusters and think of all the things that could go horribly wrong with our giant paper mache, Mr. Yuck. So be honest, have you ever snuck out with Mr. Yuck? I've never snuck out with Mr. Yuck, but I can neither confirm nor deny that the last uh, batch of fellows who graduated, oh, at this point a little over a year ago, um, there were some highly suspicious photographs I've seen over the years. You'd have to have a really big car to get him off campus though, that's all I'm saying. When was the last time you had to call the Poison Center yourself? Shockingly, given um, some of my earlier years, I have never called the Poison Center myself. Never? Never. Not even as a practicing physician or worried at home? So I see what you're saying. Well, as a a practicing physician, um, you know, I did talks fellowship right out of out of residency. I mean, I guess, you know, if you want to be technical, I do call the poison center every time I have an overdose patient, but that's just because, you know, I want the poison center to follow, but I I can't call the poison center on my own patients. And, you know, anything that may or may not have happened in my high school or, you know, college years, 
Never, never warranted uh, seeing the light of day by letting anybody in any official capacity know what had happened. So I probably should have called the Poison Center several times under the age of 18, but I'm here to tell the tale. So no harm, no foul. I will say this. I have taken many calls from friends and family who called me instead of the Poison Center over the years. This case of severe methemoglobinemia um, pretty much represented what I felt at the time and has probably ended up being as such since um, me feeling like I peaked early in uh, my toxicology career because this was in August of my first year of two-year fellowship. And I was actually sitting at dinner on a Friday night at about 10 p.m. with the then research fellow enjoying my single slowly consumed beer that I was allowed when on call when my phone rang. And of course, you know, how many good stories in emergency medicine start on a Friday night at 10 p.m.? So that's already setting the stage. Um, I took the call, and as I continued to talk with the provider who contacted me, I'm sitting with my colleague who's also an emergency physician and just watched, you know, the emotions laughter, shock go across his face. So here's how this case started. So we have two gentlemen in the town of Albany, Oregon. Um, For those who don't know, um, I did not know this myself before I started my fellowship as I'm not a native Oregonian, but I will simply say the amount of great toxicology that comes to us from Albany, Oregon is substantial. So um, The tale started on a Friday night when these two young gentlemen decided to go out for an evening on the town. They're both in their mid-30s, fine upstanding citizens who decided to start their evening at the local Wendy's. So they went to Wendy's um, to pre-party, as it were, and they each ordered their own hamburgers and they shared a Mountain Dew. And they're sitting there, and our first patient, um, who was very sensitive, so I'm going to go ahead and call him um, the poet, he suddenly dropped to the ground and had a syncopal event. And then he woke up and had another one in rapid succession. At this point, somebody called 911, EMS arrives, and finds him awake, but talking with his eyes closed, very drowsy. They transport him to the local emergency department. And the emergency physician, who was the one who called me at the poison center, walks into the room and immediately notices that his patient is blue, is talking but not quite alert and awake, and um, he's mildly tachycardic, kind of borderline blood pressures, and his oxygen saturation was 85% on room air. So they put him on oxygen, and it didn't correct. Now, for any, you know, astute students of boards-worthy emergency medicine listening to this, you're hearing about a patient who looks blue, has an oxygen saturation of 85%, and this doesn't correct on oxygen. So that should already be setting off a particular toxidrome kind of little bell in your mind for you. So this physician, who has not yet decided to call the poison center, um, is looking at his patient, thinking about what he needs to do, and his buddy, who was the tough guy, so let's call him mm, Brutus, the poet and Brutus. Brutus walks into the room and is like, hey, dude, how are you doing? And the doctor looks at him and says, wow, you look kind of blue, too. The guy says, I feel totally fine. A bit of banter ensues, and he convinces this patient to check in. So he, too, is borderline tachycardic, 
normal blood pressure, his oxygen saturation is 80% on room air. And um, they put him on oxygen, and this doesn't correct either. So this particular emergency physician, who clearly passed the boards and would have gotten this question right, notices his two patients look blue, and he's immediately concerned for hemoglobinemia. He draws blood. He describes the blood as looking chocolate brown, um, which is another one of the kind of classic findings. Um, and he starts questioning these guys to see if he can figure out what they were doing that caused them to both have met hemoglobinemia. Um, so this is the point where he calls me and wants to talk through it with me. Um, so I said to him, okay, so you tell me, what did they, what did they tell you they had been doing? I'm sitting here thinking, you know, we've got the poet and Brutus, two dudes in their mid thirties, pre-partying at a Wendy's at 10 PM on a Friday night. What were they up to? And the emergency physician says, well, nothing. I asked them repeatedly. They shared a Mountain Dew at Wendy's and they each had their own burger. They weren't together earlier in the day. Um, you know, and I'm like, nothing, they, they really didn't do anything. So right now I'm thinking like, come on, you know, the two, two dudes going out on a Friday night, like one thing in particular was in my mind that I was thinking that maybe they had been abusing, which is, um, something called West Village Poppers, um, which is amyl nitrite. Um, it's an inhalant that, um, in particular, has been popular in sort of gay club culture. It's something that you inhale. It makes you kind of woozy for a little bit. Um, supposedly, not supposedly, it does also decrease smooth muscle tone. So there's some thought that for receptive anal intercourse, it could be kind of an aphrodisiac and maybe make things go a little easier. I don't know. So that was one thing that was on my mind, like that these guys were doing poppers. Um, but they insisted that they hadn't done any drugs and the only thing they had shared was the Mountain Dew. Um, so I have a question. So, um, so Albany isn't known for being, well, I guess it is kind of known for being an epicenter for this kind of activity. <laughs> uh, what made him, be what made him believe them or go down the road of, of thinking they hadn't done anything? Cause I would assume that, the, um, does this doctor know them? Are they frequent flyers? Does he have any history on these patients? Do you know? Of? So, yeah, um, I was suspicious too. And I think I even, I even said to him, you know, Hey man, you know, not to be the cynical ER doctor, but what were they really getting into? And he said, you know, I've questioned them repeatedly. I've given them multiple opportunities. I've used all my ER doctor tricks about like, I need to know what you got into just in case the therapeutic I'm about to give you is something that would interact badly with it. And they're insisting that the only thing they shared was their Mountain Dew. So I have no choice but to believe them. And this leads to the real reason he called the Poison Center because he had correctly identified the methemoglobinemia based on just the way the guys looked. Um, and he knew the treatment because there is a treatment, it's methylene blue. His concern was that he was choosing to believe these two gentlemen, the poet and Brutus, that they had just drank this Mountain Dew. And his concern was that there was some kind of consumer tampering going on. So he wanted to know if the poison center had received any other calls about tainted Mountain Dew and what he should be doing as far as sending up a flare for getting authorities involved. Um, I don't think I said this before, but 
in my mind, kind of like two guys on a Friday night at 10 p.m. sounding like it, they're up to no good. There is no story involving Mountain Dew that doesn't have some nefarious activity associated with it. I mean, I'll just drop that one and let you think about it. Like Mountain Dew is is a very specific choice for shared consumption by two gentlemen who are probably way too old to be drinking Mountain Dew. Um, so I'll just, that's, that's another little clue that something funny was up. But so this physician had, you know, to his credit, even though I'm being snarky, decided, you know, he, he questioned the patients all he could. And it, he just was worried that somebody had tainted the Mountain Dew somehow, which was a valid concern. Now, why the Mountain Dew connoisseurs of the world? Why go after them? Are you not interested in the uh, the Diet Coke people, or they get a free pass in this? So I'm gonna I'm gonna punt this one to uh, Adam Carolla, who you know is a comedian. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was on Love Line for years. Not my personal favorite. Huge fan of Love Line. Okay, yeah. I mean, Love Line basically got me through residency. I I was driving home like every night when Love Line was on, and I would just listen to Love Line. And it would restore my faith in the ridiculousness of humanity. Because, you know, at the end of a long ED shift, you you kind of need that. And don't ask me why listening to crazy kids on Loveline would fix things, but sometimes it would. So Adam Carolla has made two statements that I have just thought were absolutely brilliant. The other one has no bearing on this conversation, so I will just save it for another time. But Adam Carolla once proposed fixing the teen pregnancy problem by putting contraceptives in Mountain Dew. Because it basically, the people who drink Mountain Dew self-titrate in such a manner that the ones that you want, you're the most concerned about reproducing irresponsibly and accidentally are the ones who probably are drinking the most Mountain Dew. And as they get a little more mature and a little more responsible, the Mountain Dew starts to disappear from their diet. So I, I think he's absolutely right. You know, there's um, the mnemonic for um, rattlesnake bites, which you may have heard at some point. It's like the five T's, you know, the risk factors for being bitten by a rattlesnake that people always rattle off the five T's tattooed. Well, and you can, you can get this into more than five T's, by the way. So I'm just going to start. It'll probably be like seven tattooed truck, testosterone, twenties, toothless I got up to five and then I just went blank anyway if Mountain Dew started with a T it would be on one of them all I'm saying just file that one away for your future clinical uh your spidey sense Mountain Dew Friday night 10 p.m something funny's going on um so yeah so but this physician had chosen to take what they were saying at face value and so you know the poison center nurses who were fantastic at navigating a lot of these local resources um kind of took over at that point and we talked about the management of methemoglobinemia which in most standard cases is usually a single dose of methylene blue is going to be your treatment um he had sent methemoglobin levels and was waiting for them at the point that we talked but just clinically was pretty sure this is what these guys had so yeah i kind of snickered got off the phone my colleague, the research fellow, wow, Shana, what a cool case. I'm jealous. I should have done tox. Yeah, you're right. Of course, you should have tox is awesome. We go back to our beers and our uh, schnitzel. This was at a fabulous place over on uh, Northeast 28th. It's not open anymore, but they had this amazing schnitzel and beers. So good. Anyway, my phone rings uh, about 45 minutes later, and it's the doc again. 
uh, wanting to talk. And he says, well, there's been a little, a little development. So apparently this ER doctor went, you know, full, full court press with calling in the authorities to look into a food tampering. Um, state police showed up. Um, he was trying to get a hold of somebody from the FDA. And I think it may have been the arrival of state police and the, um, realization of just how sick they were because somewhere in there the methemoglobin levels came back on these patients and um, they were ridiculously high. Um, the poet who was, if you recall, the guy who got the sickest and he had two syncopal events prior to presentation, his methemoglobin level was 78%. Um, and his buddy Brutus, because Brutus is tough, his was only like 56%. Um, you know, we can talk more about the specifics of methemoglobinemia, but the bottom line is if you look up in a textbook, like, you know, Goldfrank's textbook of toxicology has a chart of symptoms associated with different levels of methemoglobin and greater than 70% um, is listed as coma and death. So these guys were pretty sick. They needed to be admitted to the ICU for management of their methemoglobinemia. I don't know if it was that part or if it was the... Um, impending state troopers, but a confession occurred. So as suspected, we had not gotten the full story initially. Um, it is true that these gentlemen had shared a Mountain Dew, but as the emergency physician presented to me, what had actually happened is they had purchased some 2CE on the internet and the poet put some of his 2CE on his tongue and it tasted horrible. And being a delicate flower, he decided to dump it into the Mountain Dew and drink it that way. So he drank some of the Mountain Dew and his buddy drank the rest. Yes. Yeah, so, aha, these gentlemen were not disclosing that they were abusing a drug. Um, so that solves that part. But instantly my brain starts turning. You know, at this point, this case took place about five years ago. And the 2C, 2CE and the 2C drugs were pretty new on the scene, so to speak. Um, but I was not aware of any time when the 2Cs had ever caused methemoglobinemia. And I did a really quick search and couldn't find anything. And I said this to the doc who called, um, you know, I'm surprised about this case. It's something's not adding up. And you know, he says to me, well, they actually have a little more left. I've got the vial right here. Um, you know, and the state police are here and they have a lab they can analyze it at. And this is a crime. So they're willing to do it, you know. So there's like a little bit, a little bit more of this like yellow goop in the vial. They're going to analyze it. To which I said, huh, I'm pretty sure 2CE is usually a tablet or a white powder. So... Something's not adding up here. He's like, you're right, it's not. So 2CE is interestingly something we really didn't see all that much of here in Oregon. Um, you know, five to eight years ago, there was this sort of surge of drugs on the proverbial market um, that were these, you know, quote unquote, not for human consumption drugs. So there were kind of two classes one was the research chemicals, um, quote unquote. The others was like the, the bath salts and the synthetic marijuanas. And so these were things that were being sold pretty openly 
labeled not for human consumption. So there was a bit of a loophole. And even though everybody knew that they were being abused, you know, in 2010, you could walk into a convenience store or a truck stop and buy a package of bath salts called bath salts. They're little, you know, white crystals. They look like bath salts. And it says not for human consumption. And they're labeled like you're going to really go and use them in your tub. But everybody who was buying them and frankly selling them knew that you would go and smoke them or snort them and get high. Same things with the synthetic marijuanas. K2 or spice is what it was called. It was like this little pile of, you know, herbaceous looking stuff in a bag. And it was supposed to be burned as incense and was clearly labeled not for human consumption and people would take it and smoke it and get high. Um, so the research chemicals was another thing where there were these, you could just buy stuff openly on the internet. Um, a lot of the 2C drugs kind of fell under that. So 2CE was one of them. There was also 2CB, 2CD, um, all these like weird names. And they basically were, we call them substituted amphetamines. They're stimulants with some hallucinogenic properties, um, tend to be used kind of in club scenarios, the same way that something like ecstasy, you know, or Molly might have been. So, um, yes, so 2CE. And so what these guys ended up confessing pretty quickly, they had purchased the 2CE on the internet from a website in China. So our guys are the patient type willing to wait for a shipment to come all the way from China exactly. to get like, high in the Wendy's parking lot on a Friday night. I sure hope you didn't pay extra for uh, delivery of your suspiciously not 2CE, 2CE. Um, right, exactly. So clearly they did not have any sort of amphetamine-like or hallucinogenic properties. They got methemoglobinemia, passed out, and almost died. You know, there's not a lot of other stuff that I think of as being abusable. There's a huge list of things that can cause methemoglobinemia. And of course, at this point, I'm running through this in my mind because I'm thinking they didn't really take 2CE. I know that they drank some yellow liquid. But things that would be abused potentially, um, a lot of the topical anesthetics, specifically like bupivacaine, have methemoglobin-producing properties. So... In line of thinking, like, two guys going out, you know, like, I don't know if we're thinking gay club culture, were they doing poppers, were they using a topical anesthetic to facilitate any number of activities? And then the other thing, there are a couple antibiotics that can cause methemoglobinemia. Um, Dapsone is one of them. Bactrim is another. So, and those are both medications that are used for... Um, pneumocystis prophylaxis for HIV. So these were all like the kind of things I was thinking through. The list suddenly got way bigger when we're confronted with the fact that these guys were trying to get high on 2CE. They had a yellow oily liquid that they poured in their Mountain Dew and they drank and then weird things happen and this yellow oily liquid just like doesn't fit the description of 2CE. So so the story continues because it's a Friday night. They get admitted to the hospital locally. Um, the state crime lab takes over the analysis, and we know it's going to be a few days because it's the weekend until we know what they ingested. So they're admitted to the ICU. Um, you know, the first med hemoglobin level for the poet was 78%, which is lethal if untreated. The second level, I'm sorry, the first level for... Brutus was 56, so they both get methylene blue, get admitted to the ICU. 
And if you read the textbook on how this is supposed to go, the vast majority of cases of methemoglobinemia, regardless of the cause, should be essentially treated and reversed by getting a dose of methylene blue, maybe two doses, because this guy's level was so high, who knows. Um, but this wasn't the case. They were dosed, and then they were dosed again and dosed again. And they, you know, particularly the poet stayed profoundly cyanotic, profoundly symptomatic, meaning he felt horrible. He was, you know, never unconscious, but difficult to rouse. Um, they were treating with methylene blue and then rechecking met hemoglobin levels. So um, the poet's level peaked at 86 and Brutus's peaked at around, I think it was 70. So this is not going the way it's supposed to go. They're supposed to, whatever the cause, get treated once maybe twice get better. They um, each received, uh, I think Brutus received five doses of methylene blue, um, was feeling better and actually signed out of the hospital AMA on day two because they wouldn't let him smoke. Um, so he kept leaving the ICU to smoke. They told him not. And he ended up just leaving the hospital AMA. Um, his buddy, the poet, um, got extremely sick and was quite symptomatic and was not able to join his friend when he left. Um, finally stabilized his methemoglobin level like towards the end of day two, and it was staying in a more reasonable range. But on the morning of day three, he suddenly dropped his crit um, and developed a hemolytic anemia pretty rapidly. When he had come in, I think his initial hemoglobin had been around 12, and that was on Friday night. And um, Sunday morning, it was around 8, and by Sunday night, it was 5.5. So um, he basically, you know, methemoglobinemia um, is caused by oxidant stress to the red blood cell. And there's sort of a spectrum of these, you know, oxidizing agents that can cause methemoglobinemia can also cause hemolytic anemia. It's kind of very similar mechanism where it's just damage to the red blood cell, um, oxidant damage. So it's not the craziest thing to have both occur, but this guy like basically just got hit by the everything stick, right? So he has horrible methemoglobinemia and then he starts lysing his red blood cells. He requires multiple blood transfusions and continues to drop his crit because clearly there's a reservoir of some sort in his body where this process, whatever whatever this mystery chemical is, is hanging around and is continuing to cause damage. So at that point on day three, he actually did get transferred to our hospital and we were able to meet him in person. And um, it was a became a very fascinating case because, you know, on... Monday morning in the light of day, we get our final answer from the state crime lab of what these guys had ingested. And it turned out that they had consumed basically a bottle of pure aniline. So when I heard this, it's like, you know, the one little neuron started twitching in my brain. Aniline dye was like on the list of things that can cause transitional cell bladder cancer that I still remember to this day from when I crammed all this stuff into my head for step two way back when. Um, and if you look at the list of tons and tons and tons of things that can cause methemoglobinemia, like sure, it's on the list along with all these other chemicals that you're not really sure what they are um, and that people don't normally expose themselves to willingly. Um, 
interestingly, it is on the list of things that could cause a much shorter list of things that can cause a more prolonged course of methemoglobinemia. Anilindi is used in polyurethane manufacture, and it's also used in leather tanning. Um, and of course, I had to go and very rapidly educate myself on aniline too at the time because it's not not like I knew what the heck other than that it was a cause of transitional cell bladder cancer. Interestingly, we went and looked at the website from which these two upstanding citizens had attempted to purchase 2CE, and there is a research chemical section which was just filled with all of these club drugs that you can buy on the internet because they're quote-unquote not for human consumption. And then there was another section for polyurethane manufacturing products and components, and aniline was in fact something you could buy from them. So one of life's greatest mysteries, which will forever be unsolved, is did our brainiacs, the poet and Brutus, just click the wrong box when they were trying to order their drugs? Number one. Number two, did somebody royally screw up when they were packaging their their purchase to send to them from China? And how in the heck are you supposed to complain to customer service for that? You know, and, or number three, did somebody do it on purpose with malicious intent? We'll never know. Um, but clearly these guys, you know, buyer beware. They were trying to buy drugs on the internet from China and shockingly got something other than what they bargained for. Instantly, you know, we dragged up all the literature we could on aniline exposures. And, you know, there's this textbook um, that is the most dry, boring textbook I think that has probably ever existed. Um, Basalt, it's like chemical properties of chemicals basically it's just like they all have little paragraphs and it's like the thing we go to when we need like really obscure information on on drugs or chemicals and one of the things we were looking for the volume of distribution so you know the volume of distribution just for those who don't know it's sort of a artificial construct um, mathematical construct to uh, describe the behavior of a xenobiotic, which is, you know, toxicologists like ridiculous word for anything you ingest into your body, but like for xenobiotics distribution in the body. Um, so, you know, the take home from this is that a low volume of distribution is going to be something that really just stays in the intravascular compartment and doesn't distribute to the tissues. Something with a high volume of distribution is going to distribute everywhere. And, you know, this matters for a few things. One of the main things we think about it for is if we're considering dialysis. So if something has a very large volume of distribution and it's going to be widely distributed in the body, there's no point in dialyzing it because dialysis only really cleans the intravascular compartment. We went to the Basalt book to look up and see what the volume of distribution was for aniline to try to understand. So the way that it was behaving in these patients where they were having recurrent, like multiple episodes of recurrent methemoglobinemia, and then our friend the poet develops hemolytic anemia, that would make you think that it's it's sticking around somewhere in the body and continually coming back into the blood, right? Well, we go look at like our Bible and it says volume of distribution, question mark. Like there's literally not even information. There was this very small handful of case reports like from the 80s of aniline exposures um, that had caused methemoglobinemia and either led to people dying or not. And there wasn't a lot of other information. This is not a drug that people 
or a chemical rather that people ingest in large quantities intentionally. You know, it was mostly like workers who had been accidentally exposed at a plant. You know, this is not something that's out in the world, easy to grab and try to overdose on to kill yourself. So we were all kind of making it up as we went. And we had some really interesting conversations with the hematology folks as far as how to best manage this. We were advocating for exchange transfusion, which, you know, so dialysis is something that cleans, you know, just the liquid component of the blood. And exchange transfusion is basically taking all the blood out and replacing it with whole blood product because um, we felt that there was probably a pretty large reservoir of aniline in the red blood cells themselves. And that's why we were getting hemolysis and recurrent methemoglobinemia. Um, you know, on day 10 of the poet's admission at OHSU, he was getting repeated transfusions of blood because he kept, you know, hemolyzing everything. He got a few rounds of dialysis, um, I'm sorry, plasma exchange. He wasn't getting dialysis. He was getting plasma exchange. Finally, they did like a full whole blood exchange and he started to get better, but we don't know if he just got better anyway. Cause at that point he was like a week into his illness. So I have to say, um, we went and saw him every day and he was, he was quite a character. Um, one of the things that had happened was he had, and I'm using his own words, he had developed a PTSD-like response to the word aniline. So you weren't allowed to say the word aniline around him. You could refer to the substance. But if you said the word aniline, he started kind of making these pukey faces. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, he, he was very traumatized by his experience. And apparently um, there had been a huge falling out between him and Brutus, you know, which is unfortunate because clearly these dudes were pretty tight. But, you know, if, if you can't stick with your friend through your accidental ingestion of aniline instead of 2CE that you bought on the Internet from China, you know, then I, I don't know. Like, I guess that's the true test of friendship. Why this matters is when our buddy the poet started um, lysing all of his red blood cells and developed a really significant hemolytic anemia, we instantly became worried about his friend who had signed out AMA. And we really wanted to get in touch with him to make sure he was okay, because we were concerned the same thing had happened to him. And this is when we learned about the falling out. Um, it was very difficult to engage the poet to even talk about what had happened, because these two were pretty upset at each other. Um, he did give us his cell phone number and we started a campaign that we were affectionately referring to as Brutus Watch 2011. We may have used his real name, but we were like calling him multiple times a day and, you know, saying, Hey, this is, you know, Dr. Cusin from the poison center. We really want to make sure you're okay. Please give us a call back. Um, just leaving lots of messages and Apparently, what ended up happening finally is Brutus called his buddy, the poet, they made up. The poet told him that he really needed to give us a call and needed to go to the hospital. Um, what he, what Brutus passed on was that actually he, he'd already done this. So apparently he had tried to go back to work after the incident and got so dizzy at work that he had to go home. And turned off his phone for several days and thought that he really, I swear I'm not making this up. He needed to meditate on what had happened. He decided to cover himself in a therapeutic clay and go swimming in a lake. 
And after he came out of the lake, he said, you know, it's time for me to face this. So he never called any of us back, but he did go back to the same ED that he had been treated before. Um, they checked a CBC. He had had a hemoglobin of, I think, 16 when he had first checked into the hospital about seven days before, and it was 10 at this point. So he clearly had developed hemolytic anemia. Um, he refused to stay. They asked him if he would come back two days later uh, to have another hemoglobin check. He said, maybe, maybe not. Never showed up. But it's interesting to think that he got so dizzy at work he couldn't keep working because that certainly sounds like symptomatic hemolytic anemia to me. Um, so, you know, hopefully, Brutus, wherever you are, you're doing okay. Tough guy. How about a guy, the poet? How did he fare out? He did okay in the end. You know, he was with us. He, his total admission was 12 days long. Um, I couldn't tell you in the end the total amount of blood products he got. Um, but he got quite a few transfusions. Um, you know, had the exchange transfusion finally got better. Um, and, uh was lost to the ages i suppose we'll say yeah discharged on day 12 wow. hopefully never to buy illegal drugs off the internet again speaking of which what was the uh the legal fallout of this so our original ed doc basically gets the um the state involved who i understand gets the feds involved yeah anything happened with that um so he actually yeah he got the dea involved and i think they pretty much hit a dead end because once it became a question of illegal drugs shipped from another country, there's really not a lot they can do. Um, you know, it was shortly after this that, um, and I'm not going to give this case credit for this happening, but, you know, there was a lot going on nationwide. And right around this time, um, a lot of these not-for-human-consumption drugs got emergency scheduled as, you know, um, like schedule one, like not for any legitimate medicinal use. These are illegal drugs. You can't do them scheduling by the DEA. So, um, you know, the sort of accessibility of things like basalts and research chemicals and, um, spice certainly dropped down. You could no longer just buy it at a truck stop. Like you used to be able to not to say people don't still get it, but it is now officially illegal to do those drugs. So a little less pervasive. That's going to conclude part one of this episode. Stick around for part two. We're going to take a deeper dive into identifying methemoglobinemia, some common pitfalls, and then, of course, the pathway to toxicology and what it's like to take a fellowship. Check out part two if you'd like to listen to some more. <laughs>